Welcome to the Abide in Me podcast, where we're countering the malaise of modern culture and superficial spirituality by taking aim at the truth. We'll be looking for answers to the big life questions. What was our origin? Where can we find meaning and purpose? How do we discern between good and evil? Fact and fiction? And what is our ultimate destination? You can find more content on our YouTube channel, AIM Radio, or follow us on Instagram. All links and resources are provided in the podcast notes. Enjoy this week's episode. had a bit of a revelation yesterday and um, what it feels like when there's an epiphany is that a lot of things that I've thought about before kind of come together at a single point and I have one of those aha moments. So I've been thinking a bit recently about the differences between extroverts and introverts and I watched um, a little video by Matt Walsh. He's the guy that did the what is a woman documentary, which everyone should go and watch. Um, And he's done these kind of videos before about what it's like to be an introvert versus what it's like to be an extrovert. And they're quite funny because not a lot of people talk about it accurately. I think people think that if you're an introvert, then you're shy. And if you're an extrovert, you're outgoing. But that actually, well, it can be the case. You can be an introvert and shy, but it's, um, it's kind of different from that. I guess the main difference is that introverts like peace and quiet. They like time to think. They like long periods without talking because it allows them to think. And extroverts are the opposite. They like to talk. And in fact, they think really through talking out loud. And his point in this video is all about how the world is set up for extroverts. And... That means, I think, that for introverts, it can seem really fake and very loud and very busy and kind of meaningless. Certainly, if you look at the culture at the moment, it all just seems a little bit futile and meaningless because people are just talking. Lots of people just talking constantly, posting on social media, etc. And I started thinking about this in relation to spiritual seeking. I guess I had always assumed that the reasons I was seeking in a spiritual sense were going to be the same for everyone else. And when I quoted the Apostle Paul's words that he wrote to the church in Corinth, when he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And that verse always stood out to me because that's kind of what I've been looking for, to be known. Not just to know, as in know the truth or 
know who God is or what the ultimate truth of reality is, but to be known. And when I had that experience of understanding that I was seen and known and forgiven and understood and loved, that was actually the experience that got me over the hump, if you like, when I had that reluctant convert moment that C.S. Lewis had and acknowledged that God was God. Because I had the experience of being known and I'd never had that fully before. And so since that point, it all seemed really simple to me in the sense of, well, God exists. He seeks to know us. Of course, he knows everything about us and we seek to know God. And then I realised the other day that not everyone wants that. That, in fact, is not what people are seeking, especially if they are extroverts. And I was speaking to a friend of mine who is an extrovert. And I asked this person if they had this almost craving that I had my whole life to be known. And they said no. In fact, what they said was that they were a private person and that they didn't want people to really know them. And of course, if you're an extrovert, that is often the case. You're out there amongst a lot of other people with their personas on. You're talking to lots of different people, telling stories, sharing stories, having a party. Everything's kind of relatively superficial, kind of talking about what you've done and what you want to do and what you're wearing and where you've been on holiday. All of this kind of stuff, masking who you really are inside. And I think part of the reason is that a lot of people who are extroverted don't actually know who they are inside because they never really think about it. Because it doesn't interest them. So I wonder what people who are extroverted are seeking when they're seeking a spiritual connection. Because a lot of people who are extroverts are actually spiritual teachers. Whether they are some of these mega church pastors within Christianity, I mean, there's just a plethora of new age extroverted so-called spiritual teachers. There's a lot of extroverted people that have kind of taken on spiritual seeking as like a new hobby. And they seem to just want to kind of try out lots of different activities because that's what extroverts like to do. But I wonder what are they actually seeking because if you're not seeking to be known, are you just seeking knowledge? When I look at people like Russell Brand, and I've had my criticisms of him over the years, he seems to be at least trying to kind of get to the truth a bit more. But he's still one of these people, and I'd put Jordan Peterson in this bracket as well, where everything is just in the intellectual realm. You know, you've read a lot and you kind of understand a lot and it's all just in your mind. And I wonder if that is what is satisfying to extroverts in terms of spirituality. When you see Jordan Peterson talking to people who are religious, he recently spoke to Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ, and Tim Ballard, who is the head of Operation Underground Railroad, 
um, the organisation that seeks to rescue children out of um, child sex slavery. And Jim Caviezel is soon, or is, the film's out now, is playing Tim Ballard um, in the film about Tim Ballard's life, Sound of Freedom. And both of them, Jim Caviezel and Tim Ballard, are Christians and very, very faith-filled people. And in fact, they talk a lot about how their faith helped them. Um, Tim Ballard in in the kind of line of work that he's in, where he sees some of the, the worst kind of evil on the planet. And Jim Caviezel in his role as playing Christ, but also in this role where he had to expose himself to some of the things that Tim Ballard has seen. And they talk about their faith protecting them and also giving them the strength to move into these incredibly dark places. It's a really good podcast and they keep talking about their faith in Jesus and God and Jordan Peterson keeps trying to bring it back into the intellectual realm. They're talking about loving God because they have a relationship with God. They know God and God knows them. And that is what gives them the strength to move through what they have to do. And Jordan keeps it into the intellectual narrative realm, talking about kind of themes and narratives. And and it's sort of similar with, with Russell and people who who like knowledge and are seeking something, maybe they're trying to seek the truth, but the relationship side of things isn't there. And I think part of it is a fear of actually being seen and known because, of course, then you're exposed, aren't you? And a lot of people don't want to be exposed. I mean, a lot of introverts don't want to be exposed. My experience with being an introvert and knowing introverts is that part of the reason that we don't talk a lot um, is because we know a lot of extroverts and we like them and we just let them talk. And we'll only open up if people around us are actually interested in us. And if they don't appear to be because they're talking about themselves, then we'll just keep quiet because it's really no big deal. So they might hide themselves from other people but there is a deep yearning for being known. And maybe there's only one or two people um, in our lives who truly know us. And so I think we're more likely to be seeking to be known in a spiritual sense, in an ultimate sense, if you like. There's no hiding from God. And when you get that experience, when you really, really understand that, and you go through the experience of being seen and known and exposed, but also loved and accepted, then that is life-changing. And that is a true connection with God outside of the realm of the mind. Now, we might drop back into the mind to try and work some of these things out and do the research and do the apologetics and do the reading and everything else. But the connection comes through the heart and the connection comes when you drop down your barriers and you allow yourself to be seen, warts and all. But if you're intent on projecting an image all the time, then you're, you're never going to get there. And you're just going to accumulate more and more and more and more knowledge about God or other spiritual traditions. But it's never really going to be satisfying but I think the fear of being seen and known 
um, stops a lot of people. And a lot of those people are more, more extroverted. And so it was a revelation to me because it never really, never really crossed my mind that there would be people out there who just didn't care if anyone knew them really or not. They were content with just projecting images of who they are and surrounding themselves with other people who do the same. And so there might be some depth somewhere expressed in different ways, maybe creatively, but on the whole, where extroverts get their energy from is being around lots of different people, doing lots of different activities, lots of novelty, you know, the kind of social butterfly would be the stereotype, I guess. And it's just all very fun and surface level and a laugh and no big deal. And that's where they get their energy from, where that kind of of thing or activity or event or lifestyle is like a death knell to introverts who crave a deep connection, um, understanding other people, being understood themselves, um, wanting to talk and discuss things that are what they would class as important rather than just the the day-to-day activities of, of people and families and societies. And it's kind of amazing, really, that introverts and extroverts get on at all. But we each have something that the other wants, at least on some level, or wants to partake of every now and again. And maybe needs, actually. Because introverts can kind of go entirely insular and just wallow in their own emotions and thoughts and be completely detached from reality. And introverts can just become incredibly sort of vain and narcissistic and superficial and almost caricatures of themselves if they're not prepared to look within and start to understand at least themselves, never mind other people. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that because, of course, when we're talking when I'm talking about spiritual things, I'm assuming a load of stuff. I'm assuming that other people want the same things that I want or are seeking the same things that I'm seeking. I mean, I already know that people aren't generally seeking the truth. They're seeking peace. But to to recognise that actually some people don't care about being understood or known deeply was, was quite a revelation for me because I think that that necessarily keeps you away from having a relationship with God because God wants to be known. I mean, why wouldn't you? If you created or invented the whole universe, wouldn't you want the sentient beings within that universe to know you? Or wouldn't you try and have a relationship with them? Wouldn't you, in fact, trying to incarnate into their dimension of reality to have a relationship with them, to make it easier us to have a relationship with God because we can see God in Jesus, where the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, as Paul would say. And so are we running from that relationship? And if we are, why? Is it easier just to kind of 
keep God in the narrative realm or even just the moral realm and say, oh yeah, well, we have these morals and we we kind of say they're from God and then we're kind of more likely to be a good person if we think, you know, God is watching us or, you know, we want to kind of keep it at the story level or that the Bible is just a kind of rule book that we need to live by because it's a good idea and it keeps society on the straight and narrow. But of course, if we really understood that God exists, that he wants to have a relationship with us and he, that he deeply cares about what we do and how we act and that he sees everything we do, he knows all of our thoughts, then we would be way more likely to actually be a good person because we then care about what he thinks about us instead of just following a bunch of rules so we don't get in trouble we would be in the situation like we are maybe with our parents or other people that we respect where we don't want to disrespect them or upset them or do anything to hurt them. It's, it's more from a, from a place of love rather than a place of, oh, there's a scary man in the sky who's going to be angry if we don't do certain things. So I wanted to read one of the Psalms. It's certainly one of my favourites. It's probably um, other people's favourites too. Psalm 139 where David is relaying this sense of being known by God and how he feels about it. And so he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol... You are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So the language in this psalm shows the absolute inseparability of us 
with God. If he goes up into heaven, God's there. If he goes down into Sheol, the grave, after death, God is there. He was there at the beginning. He was there when we were being formed in our mother's womb. He's there with us throughout the whole of our life. And as David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. But who really wants that level of connection? Because, of course, we can choose to have it or not. We can choose to turn away or we can choose to acknowledge God's presence. And so many people choose to turn away. And ironically, to turn away to try and find a God that is more palatable, that maybe doesn't see as much or doesn't care as much, maybe is further away, more inscrutable, more distant, more cosmic sounding. And yet God is right there, waiting to be acknowledged and known. And so what's the real fear? Not just the fear of being seen and exposed for who you really are, but also pride. Because if God cares about what we do, then we're going to have to be accountable, aren't we? And I think a lot of people don't want to be accountable. I've been reading a couple of good books at the moment. One of them is called Beyond the Cosmos, The Transdimensionality of God by Hugh Ross. Now, Hugh Ross is an astrophysicist who was an atheist and then became a Christian and writes these great books, using all of his scientific knowledge to explain or try and explain God. And in this particular book, Beyond the Cosmos, he, he outlines his view of hell, speaking of accountability. What is hell like? And trying to understand how a loving God could send people to hell or how, how a loving God could punish people, this kind of dilemma that people often have. Um, I don't really have a problem with people who do things wrong being punished. That just says that we live in a just universe and God is a just God. I think the problem that most people have with hell is A, they don't really know what it's going to be like. The phrases that are used or picked up, certainly from the book of Revelation about the lake of fire and eternal torment, show us something, but they don't really give us specifics. And of course, the book of Revelation is a highly poetic book. But this idea that any kind of punishment would go on for eternity seems a bit much to most people. And so I'm going to read you what Hugh Ross says about hell to see if this can shed a bit of light on it. Because what often comes up in discussions of hell is the fact that people choose it, right? God doesn't force himself on people. So you can choose to continue to go your own way. And if you do that, then the rest of your eternity is just going to continue to be you going your own way. As people often say, the people who are in hell are the people who want to be in hell. There are people in the world who cannot stand God, right? Don't want anything to do with God or goodness or beauty or truth. And so much like in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, they will just continue in the way that they've always lived. So it's a choice, 
Now, presumably some people are going to have a worse time than others. The child rapists of the world will hopefully be having more torments than people who have just been prideful their whole lives and, and choose to reject God. And so instead of hell being a punishment that is meted out by God, it's more just that certain people don't want to be in God's presence, which is kind of the definition of hell, isn't it? You won't be in God's presence. Now, I don't know, maybe you, like me, have had periods of your life where you've lived hell on earth because you've been entirely away from God's presence. I'm sure you can probably think of people who are like that and just have terrible lives here. And it's in those terrible times that a lot of people actually eventually cry out to God, whether they're in addictions or whatever else has happened that have separated them from God's presence to the, to the degree that they can't actually feel any goodness or truth or beauty or justice in their life. But for a lot of people, that is a choice. And that choice continues after we die. So I want to read Hugh Ross's few paragraphs about this. These words may sound strange, but in light of God's character, in other words, his ultimate goodness, and the character of those sentenced to separation from God, those who inhabit the lake of fire occupy the best possible realm for them. God expresses his love and compassion for hell's inhabitants by afflicting them with sufficient torment to prevent the place from being as bad as its inhabitants have the capacity to make it. We can only begin to imagine what evil could be expressed by those from whom the restraining influence of God's spirit has departed. The unleashing of individuals' full potential for cruelty and all manner of evil could make hell vastly more horrible than God designed it to be. The worst thing about hell might be the company its inhabitants must keep. But God will keep in check the horrors these individuals could inflict on one another by immobilising them to a measured degree, distracting them with a precisely determined amount and kind of pain and or discomfort. The measure of immobilization, pain and discomfort necessary to restrain each person in hell will be different for each person. The book of Revelation speaks of differing levels or degrees of torment for those who choose hell. Torment that is commensurate with each person's earthly expressions of sin and rebellion. The measure of wickedness a person practised on earth is the measure of that individual's potential to make life more miserable than it already must be for others in hell. One interpretation suggests that God calibrates each person's torment to exactly the level necessary for restraint of his or her potential for expressing evil. Many who reject the reality of hell do so because they equate the word torment with sadistic cruelty. The concept of a necessarily painful restraining effect and of its cause seems to have been overlooked. While the Greek word for torment, basanos, in the early New Testament manuscripts can denote torture, it is also used for grievous pains or distress. New Testament writers use the same word to refer to the pains of childbirth. 
Biblical references to darkness and light provide another helpful illustration of hell's torment. Consider what happens when we walk into bright sunlight from a darkened room. The pain is blinding and excruciating. If it's intense enough, it blocks our ability not only to see, but also to function at all. Is the sun inflicting this torment on us out of malice? Or is the sun just being what it is in relation to our eyes and the way they are made? Consider what it must be like for a person who chooses a life of spiritual darkness to be exposed to the radiance of God's being. And we we can actually see this in our own lives, that not only do extroverts and introverts not understand each other and sometimes not want to be around each other because of that lack of understanding, but also if someone in your life is incredibly negative and every time you see them, they're just talking about all of their problems, how much of a victim they are, how life's out to get them, and you are a generally happy person, positive person, then you will naturally not want to be around that person. You will in fact be repelled by them over time and you won't want to be in their presence. And it's the same for people who are incredibly negative or just not very nice people. They are actually repelled by good, wholesome, kind, giving people. They find them offensive You can even see this in fairy tales like Cinderella, where the ugly sisters don't want to be around her because she's beautiful and she's hardworking and they make fun of her for being so. Now, it might be envy, it might be jealousy that makes them feel like that. But as they say, never the twain shall meet. So if you are a person who categorically doesn't like goodness or truth or beauty or kindness, if you find those things offensive in people because your heart is so darkened because of the way that you've lived your life, then of course you're going to find God's presence absolutely repulsive. It's going to blind you. It's going to harm you. It's going to be excruciating. And so when God is described as a devouring fire, Fire is often used actually to describe God. But fire can be both comforting and warming. It can be purifying, and that's what God is often described as doing, as being purifying. His words are purifying. But also fire burns. And fire destroys. And so in another one of the Psalms, Psalm 18 It says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful, talking about God. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. And so this is giving us an inkling, isn't it, that this is actually the truth. Some people are repelled by goodness. They like the darkness They don't like the light of day. They like living in a cave. They like living in secrecy. They like being in control and not having to expose themselves to other people and certainly not to God. And so, of course, these people, if they've chosen that their whole 
life, they will continue to choose that after death. And so that is what hell is. As C.S. Lewis says, God says to you, thy will be done. If you want to stay in the cave, in the pit, if you want to stay in darkness, you can stay there. Now, I guess my only problem with that is if we're talking about justice, it doesn't seem really just to just leave people to their own devices because they obviously like living in the dark. And so if you continue to kind of live in the same way as you did during your life, that doesn't seem like much of a punishment. It seems like it would be much more of a punishment to actually send them to to heaven, to be nearer to God's presence. That that, that would actually seem more tortuous than leaving them to their own devices. But we don't get any concrete answers. This is why people are still debating these things. We don't get any concrete answers about this. We get images of fire, of torment, of weeping and gnashing of teeth of being outside of God's presence, outside of the city of God. And so when we read books like The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, which is a brilliant depiction of heaven and hell, when the people in hell are just living in this grey, never-ending, suburban landscape, no sunlight, the book starts off with some people just standing at the bus stop, just griping and arguing and waiting for this bus. We don't know where the bus is going. And then we realise that actually these people are on a trip up into heaven, up into God's space, to see what it's like. And when they get there, they find it blinding. They're walking on grass that is so sharp and bright that they can hardly stand it. They're then met by people from their own earthly life who have made it up into God's space, presumably because they want to be there, and who are trying to persuade them to drop whatever it has been that has kept them away from God's presence, normally normally to do with pride, okay? Normally to do with wanting to live their own lives. And every single one of them who comes up into God's space decides, after talking to their loved ones, that they want to go back down to hell. They don't like it up here. It's too bright. They don't want to drop their pride, their selfishness, their self-righteousness, their malice, their grumbling, their victimhood. They don't want to let it go. They don't want to move on. They don't want to forgive others. They want to go back down into the suburban landscape. And they just want to continue living in the way that they've always lived. And so maybe that is ultimate justice. I don't know. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because as Hugh Ross says, there are some people, like the Hitlers of the world, who definitely deserve some hardcore justice and punishment, just as people who commit horrific crimes in our world will get sent to jail for longer terms, or maybe a worse kind of jail, or maybe even be put to death if their crimes are really heinous, as opposed to someone who's done a bit of shoplifting because they're poor and they're hungry. We treat them differently. But we're not given these answers. We're not given these answers about what hell is like. But certainly the idea of not being in God's presence, because you yourself have turned your back, does make sense to me. 
And I think this is why so many people scoff at Jesus, not just because of the kind of caricature that, that's out there, you know, that he's this kind of kind of hippie goofball that wanders around telling everyone that, uh, you know, he loves them and forgives them. Um, but because actually the idea of a sinless man, of someone who is who is just so good, the person who is who we should be and should have been from the beginning, but aren't, is offensive to people. They don't understand it. And it's because they don't understand the incarnation. Because, of course, it's difficult to understand. But it's really the linchpin for all of this that when we say Jesus is the son of God, son of means image of. Okay, we're not saying that God the Father found a wife and then created uh, a son in the way that we understand son. Jesus is the image of God on earth, incarnate. And so when, when people say, this is one of Oprah's favourite questions to ask all of the fake Christians that go on her Super Soul Sunday show. She's like, but is, is Jesus, you know, the, the only way to God? Because, of course, that's Jesus' claim. No one comes to the Father apart from through me. Is Christianity the only way to God? And all the fake Christians say, no, of course not. You can get there whichever way you want, right? Because it's all about tolerance and permissiveness and your truth and my truth. But, of course, what that question fails to put across is that Jesus is God. So what the question really is, is, is God the only way to God? If Jesus is God, then the question, is Jesus the only way to God, becomes, is God the only way to God? And of course, the answer to that is, yes. But people shy away from the incarnation because it's difficult to understand. But we don't understand things by dismissing them. We understand things by reading and learning and trying to understand them. And so the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews, when the author is speaking about Jesus, he says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, speaking about the Old Testament prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that leads us back to the beginning of, of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so we have these big concepts, don't we? This idea that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. 
that everything that was created was created through him and by him, that he is the word of God, the Logos. He's what is behind it all, embodying wisdom, embodying truth. I am the way, the truth and the life. All of these huge ideas that a lot of people recognise when they hear them, but don't take the time to try and understand what they mean. And so in Hugh Ross's book, because he's an astrophysicist and is really interested in all the different dimensions of our reality, which, of course, God created. God created or invented time, space, matter, energy. And so God can create multiple dimensions, as is borne out in mathematics and science. But in order for God to make himself known, he has to come into our reality. You know, in the Old Testament, for the most part, God is expressed through his Holy Spirit or an angel who appears in human form, like the angel of the Lord. And so in order for us to have a relationship with God, we need to have something to kind of hold on to. It's all very well thinking about sort of spirits and forces and invisible things. But in order to really connect with us, God had to incarnate through Jesus. And so Jesus is God. And so Jesus leads people to God because he is God. And that's why Jesus is the only way because God is the only way back to God. Now, these concepts, I've got to tell you, have taken me years to even slightly get a handle on. And it's come from reading the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The brilliant thing about the Bible is it kind of hyperlinks itself. It references itself. The New Testament writers of of Hebrews and the Gospel of John are constantly referring back to the Old Testament. And so these ideas and themes about light and darkness and fire and life, heaven and hell, are throughout all of the 66 books of the Bible. But also reading books by these scientists, by atheistic scientists who, in looking into our reality, whether it's through astrophysics physics or genetics or evolutionary biology, they have come to believe in God just because of the just impeccable design of everything from cells all the way up to galaxies and stars and suns, that everything is perfectly aligned and working in order. And so if God is outside all time, space, matter and energy, beyond all of our dimensions, so far beyond anything that we can imagine. Like if you're, if you're in awe of the universe when you see these Hubble telescope images of distant galaxies and nebula, and you just think God is bigger than that. God is more spectacular than that because God invented that. And then you understand how mind-blowing it is and how difficult it is to then have a relationship with a God that cosmic and vast. And yet, when you look at Jesus and you read through the Gospels, you listen to what he said about himself and what other people said about him, then you can start to have a relationship 
with this person. And because of the resurrection, this person is still alive. That's the whole point. That if we follow him, his way, his truth, his life, we'll have eternity with God, as opposed to running away into darkness once again. And because God has put eternity in our hearts, as it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's an important choice. I used to like to believe that when I died, that my consciousness or whatever, life force, would just flow back into the universe. You know, maybe I'd have a kind of sense of floating through space or going back into the vast ocean of consciousness. You know, that seemed like a nice ending. Because I think heaven is, has been so caricatured that it just seems kind of boring to a lot of people. But of course, heaven isn't the end. The end of the Bible is God creating a new heavens and a new earth, making all things new, different, renewed. We're told that we'll have jobs to do, work to do, things to be getting on with. And that sounds like a much better option than living in the grey netherworld of our own negativity. And I have to say, even though the idea of being judged, the idea of being kind of watched um, and seen and known doesn't always feel great, I would much prefer, and it makes much more sense to me, that there would be an ultimate justice for everything that's gone on in the world over time. That all the people that have chosen to cause mayhem have chosen to be evil because they like the darkness, that those people will face ultimate justice for their crimes. Just as I cannot wait for all the people that have been causing mayhem in my short lifetime, even over the past two or three years, to be brought to justice. That makes sense to me. But if it's going to happen for one, it's going to happen for all. So hopefully that'll make us a bit more aware of what we're doing and maybe that will seek us to form a relationship with the God of the universe because in doing so we'll be helped to do the right thing. We'll be transformed in fact by his presence, by his fire, purifying us so that we do make the right decisions, so that we do actually have a positive effect on ourselves and our families and communities rather than just following our own selfish ways. We need to be transformed in order to do that. We can't do it on our own. Look around you. Look at human history. We haven't evolved. If you read the Bible, we are exactly the same psychologically as the people thousands of years ago. We might have new technologies but certainly those technologies at the moment seem to be dumbing people down and making them more disconnected from each other, more lonely, more depressed, more anxious, more callous, more apathetic. So have we evolved? I don't think so. And so in order to do so, we need an infusion of God's presence. And we can do that by having a relationship through prayer and of course, by reading about Jesus and all the other great people who have tried to have a relationship with God.
namely the prophets of the Old Testament and, of course, the apostles in the New Testament, people who faced just unbelievable levels of persecution and suffering just to get this message out there, people who died for the truth. I don't know how many people would die for the truth today. And so we do indeed have a great cloud of witnesses, as it says in the letter to the Hebrews, that we can look back on, but we can also have a relationship through love with God, not just our minds, not just intellectually, although that is important, but actually a loving relationship where we know we are loved and we love God. That's what helps us transform. That's what helps us to be transformed into Christ's image so we can do the things that he did and more. And so I know I started off talking about introverts and extroverts, but (laughs) as always, we end up somewhere different. But there's so many people out there saying that they, they want to be improved. Okay, it's personal development. They'll quote the Tao, knowing yourself is true wisdom. But are they really getting to know themselves? Or is it just another persona to put on? A spiritual persona? A spiritual activity? Something that looks good from the outside? Well, we're called inward. Deep calls to deep. We're called inward. We're called to the truth of who we are, not just what people see on the outside. And we're called to share that with each other and also with God. So that we don't continue to look through the mirror dimly. We have some clarity about who we are, how we act in the world, and also who we will be for eternity. So I hope that helps. I'll list some of the Bible passages that I quoted today and some of the books that I referenced as well. So you can start getting to know God and open up to your fellow man and woman. Okay, thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again soon. Bye for now.